Basically, the Feast of Trumpets essentially is one event. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, the first resurrection, to rise to meet Christ in the air. But you come to the Feast of Atonement, and it has so many, many more things that are involved in it. So there's a contrast there. <clears throat> but let's go to Leviticus 23, first of all, and, and see that we're to be doing what we're doing today. Beginning in verse 27, also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be day of atonement. It shall be a commanded assembly or holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict your souls, that is fast, as we can see in other scriptures, and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. You shall do no work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Eternal, your God. Now this is very serious. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not fast in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. If we don't keep this day, God says he will cut us off from his people. That's pretty serious, about as serious as it gets. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. So if you don't fast, you'll be cut off. And if you work, you'll be destroyed from among God's people. That's a severe warning like we see in no other of the feasts. There's a reason for that. Now, let's go back to the beginning of this. It says it's a day of atonement. What does atonement mean? It means, well, first of all, well, now let's go with that first. Atonement means to remove, to expiate, to cancel, to cover, to cleanse, to disannul, to forgive, to purge, and to pardon. This is a day that all those things are to occur. Now, Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our sins separate us from God. So what we're looking at here is a day that sins are forgiven, removed, expiated, forgiven, purged, and all those words. Now, sin leads to death, right? Wages of sin is death. But if that can be pardoned and purged and cleansed, then death does not have to occur because we are redeemed from death by the blood of Christ. So when we come to this day, it is a day that separates sin from holiness. And that is why he makes this proclamation here, that if you don't fast and afflict your soul and do your part, you will not be forgiven, but he will simply remove you from the number. 
If you work, you will be destroyed. Now, we're talking spiritually here, the lake of fire. Remember the story of the wedding feast and those who came improperly clad and didn't have on a wedding garment. They were cast out (laughs) and others invited in who would dress properly. So, what he's saying here in a physical way to a people back then applies on a spiritual level. If it comes time for this day, as we just heard in the song, to represent the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the picture of the wedding feast is the same. You've got to come properly clad in garments of righteousness and holiness, white garments, clean and pure. And if you don't have those on, you can't be part of the marriage. You would be cast out. So there's great symbolism here in us not eating today and in not working. In other words, eating and working on this day is an equivalent of sin, if you will, only for one day. But it is sin that separates us and cuts us off. So obviously, working and eating today picture sin because that's what cuts us off or gets us cut off, cast out, and destroyed. Lake of fire. Now, on a spiritual level, once we reach the Feast of Trumpets and are changed into spirit beings... That will mean that we already have been cleansed and made holy. Okay? And he's not going to take away immortality and eternal life, which he just gave you at the wedding. Feast of Trumpets is the door, if you will, to the wedding feast. You make it through that door, you will have been proclaimed cleansed and prepared. But he goes on with this analogy here to show us that once you're in and once you're there, you will have had to have been cleansed, and we need to go through this day on an annual basis for us to grasp and understand that we must become sinless, and we must afflict our souls Because overcoming and growing and putting out sin is difficult, and it is an affliction. Now, why do we, in particular, fast and do without? Because we are in a time, in a sense of mourning a time of being bereft, if you will, of our husband-to-be. We are currently in the engagement period prior to the marriage, and Christ said, I am going away. I'm going to come back and marry you, but I'm going away. And I will prepare a place for you, and I will return and receive you to myself. 
And that is, he was asked by the Pharisees, why do your disciples fast? And he said, they fast because I am not going to be with them. Now, when he returns, we will not fast anymore. It will be a wedding feast. He said he would not drink wine again until he drank it with us in the kingdom. And we'll get to that scripture of the wedding feast. And we will drink wine with him, and we will feast with him. Zechariah 8, what's the verse? I wrote it down here. Uh, somewhere, Zechariah 8.19 talks about the fasts that we go through, the four fasts during the year, which we just had one about Gedaliah. And he says there that those fasts will be turned to times of uh, joy. Let's see, I wrote it down. Of joy, of gladness, and cheerful feasts. No more fasting, but cheerful feasts, gladness and joy. So, we are not yet married as we sit here today. We are looking forward to the marriage. The bridegroom is not here, and we want him to return. Now, fasting does what? If you read Isaiah 58. It breaks the bonds and the bands of sin and iniquity is what fasting does. It makes us realize on a physical level that if we don't eat and drink, we're going to die. That we have needs. And it is there to break the bands of of, uh, ego, of vanity, of pride. To humble us. Now, you don't feel real prideful when you're not eating and not drinking. It it makes you, you're not as aggressive. You kind of back off. You don't want to do much. You feel hungry <laughs> and thirsty. And you don't have the, your normal strength. You don't have your normal verve and vivaciousness that you would have. It quietens you down. It settles you back. And hopefully it breaks the pride and the ego and the self and helps us to break the bands of wickedness. Well, we just see right here in Leviticus 23 that eating and working on this day are parallel to that. They equate to it. And if we do not quit sinning, we can't be the bride of Christ. Now, we're not going to entirely quit until the change comes and we're immortal and have an upgoing instead of a downpulling mind. So this day we fast in hope of his soon return while we overcome, grow, get rid of the vanity, the ego, the sin, so that we can be a proper bride for him, standing in garments unspotted by the world, and pure and white and holy. That's our goal and our purpose, but we lack a lot being there, so we fast in hopes of his return and our change and perfection. 
so that we can stand with him in perfection on the sea of glass before the Father and be married. So fasting is a very, very important part of the symbolism in the purpose and the plan of God so that sin be broken, sin be gotten out, sin not be committed, and we be pure before him. No manner of work, verse 31, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening shall you celebrate your Sabbath. Now that one verse puts to sleep all the arguments about a dawn-to-dawn day and whatever else, or a midnight-to-midnight day, or whatever people come up with, from sunset to sunset, you keep the Sabbath, this Sabbath. Okay, now let's go on and get into some of the symbolism beyond what we've already discussed in chapter 25 of Leviticus. Here he's talking about the seven-year cycle, uh, six years you sow your field and so on, and prune your vineyard and gather the fruit. But in the seventh year, it's a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath for the eternal. You don't sow your fields, you don't prune your vineyard, and that which grows of its own accord you don't reap, neither gather the grapes of the vine undressed, for it is year of rest to the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you and your household, for your cattle and so on. That isn't the point here. I want to get to to verse 8. But you have seven Sabbaths of rest, seven times seven years, or 49 years. And then on the 50th year, you have the trump of the Jubilee sound on the 10th day of the seventh month. So the Jubilee, the 50th year, was announced on atonement. Uh, What does jubilee mean? Looked up the Hebrew word, it means joy, excitement, rejoicing, joyful shouting is what a jubilee is. We're jubilant, in other words. The word jubilant comes from jubilee. It can also mean an alarm, uh, trumpet blowing, and jubilee can mean an alarm. Uh, It could be an alarm of war for those who are not paying attention and it doesn't mean joy because only those for whom it means joy will find joy. And those who do not accept Christ, uh, it will be a problem. It's a warning as well. And what does he say there in Zechariah? He says, he's going to come and those who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium, upon them it will, there will be no rain. So the announcing of the millennium at the Jubilee, the 7,000 years in the plan of God, will be wonderful for those who accept it and are joyful that we're going to have peace and safety for a 1,000 years. But for those who say, no, no rain. So it's an alarm in that sense. can be either, depending on your state of mind. But let's go on down a little bit here. 
It is to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man to his possession. So it represented liberty. And God originally divided the promised land up through Joshua and gave certain portions to each of the tribes. And of each family in that tribe, they were given land that belonged to that family and that family alone. Now, he goes down and explains through here that in a 50-year cycle, you can lease out land from somebody if they have need of money or too lazy to work or whatever, and they want to not work the land, they can lease it to you, but it's 20 seconds or whatever it was, uh, for a parcel of land, but you based it on how many years were left in the Jubilee. If it happened in the 13th year or the 47th year, uh, obviously the lease would be less in the 47th year because you're going to have to give it back up in three years. So you could take land from people on a lease basis for 49 years, the 50th it returned. That way, if a family squandered their land, squandered their fortune, they got it back. That was, it liberated them from the debt. It liberated them from not being able to farm their land or have animals on it and, and have the liberty of owning that land. You got it back. And if you had become a slave because of misuse or abuse, uh, you were to be freed in the year of Jubilee, given your freedom, your liberty. So, a lot happened at that time. Uh, it said that uh, slaves of other countries you didn't have to release, but if anyone was a bondman who was an Israelite, he had to be released. Now, there's a spiritual parallel there. Our spiritual release from sin allows us to have the freedom of being in God's kingdom and at liberty throughout eternity from being a human being with human problems. That's what we're looking forward to. And we have to be a spiritual Israelite in order to receive that benefit. Now, if you remain a spiritual Gentile, that's not open to you. You remain a slave to your nature, a slave to the situation, and unless you change, you never become a part of the kingdom of God. That, uh, that opportunity will be given to all, yes. But a spiritual Israelite is not to allow himself to come under bondage. Right? We're supposed to organize and rule our lives in such a way 
that we are not indebted, we are not under bondage, we are not in the bondage of sin to the world, and being like the world is, and sinning with them and under the bondage of sin with the penalty of death over our heads, we are to come out of that. We are to be free of sin and death through Christ and His blood. So, we then are at liberty under the new covenant, which he offered life eternal, which he didn't offer in the old covenant at all. It was just physical blessing. So there are spiritual parallels here in the freedom that is given and the liberty that comes on the Day of Atonement. Christ announced uh, in Luke 4 the Day of Atonement, or the the acceptable year of the eternal, the Jubilee, on atonement in 27 A.D. I think that has great portent for us, because in Second Timothy, I mean Second Peter 3.8, he says that God is not slack concerning His promise, and a day is as a thousand years. He was reiterating what Numbers 14.34 says, a day is as a thousand years. How many days are there? Seven. That's all. Seven. That's all the days he made. First day, second day, third day, fourth day. We call them moon day, uh, Tuesday, Thor's day, and pagan names, but there were only seven. So, if a day represents a thousand years, then if there's a seven thousand year plan. And Peter says he's not slack concerning that plan. So, we have a 7,000 years we're working with. Now, when Christ announced that on atonement, 27 A.D., if it was a jubilee, we're looking at another jubilee in 2027. Is that the year he's going to proclaim liberty and send his kingdom at the end of 6,000 years? Peter says he's not slack. It'll come at the end of 6,000 years. Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, we could go back there and see some of what Paul said about this. Hebrews 3. Wherefore, holy brethren, chapter 3, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, he's telling us here that we're holy brethren if we're part of his church. And we're partakers in the heavenly calling. That is, to become God, to become a part of the kingdom of God. So he wants us to consider our apostle and high priest, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in his house, and how Christ was even more faithful. And Christ is a son over his own house in verse 6. But he goes to show here that Moses was faithful to God. Christ, as our high priest, was faithful to God. And God was not pleased with the generation under Moses. Verse 9 or verse 8, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. They saw what he could do. All the wonderful things that he did in bringing them out of Mitzrayim, 
in crossing the Red Sea, in manna, in quail, in all the things that he did for 40 years to deliver them and keep them, and yet they were aggrieved with him. And he was aggrieved with them. They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now, Paul is reciting this for a reason. He says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's equating departing from God with unbelief. What is faith? It is trust and belief in someone who says they will do something. And if we do not trust and have faith in God that he will do what he says, he says that's departing from him. I mean, you don't believe in me. You don't believe what I say. You don't think it's going to happen. Well, you're departing from everything I stand for. So unbelief or lack of faith is important. And that's the thing Christ questioned. Will I find faith when I return? Or will it be unbelief? Now, almost the whole world will be standing in unbelief, right? They will have all followed the beast, except those who knew the truth. Ninety percent of them are going to be left behind and fall to Satan and martyrdom, but hopefully they'll repent first, and Zechariah indicates at least a third will. So the whole world is going to be standing in unbelief except for a very, very few. We need to be sure we believe. Because if we don't believe in him, we've departed from him. In our understanding, our trust, it's not there. Because we don't really believe it's going to happen. You've got to believe it all the way through. But exhort one another daily while it is still today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Today is going to go away and the, the door will close. I've Talked about this some, I think, just yesterday, about how we need to sharpen each other and encourage each other and exhort one another. Onward, ye people. <laughs> let's, let's help each other, strengthen one another. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, the original Israelites had a certain amount of belief. Did they not? They sacrificed the lamb. They spread it on the door. They'd been told to do that. They believed they'd be protected if they did that. They also went ahead and put their sandals on and had the staff by the door as they ate the Passover, knowing that they were going to be delivered. And they did that. And they got delivered. And they spoiled the Egyptians as they left that very night at midnight. But it wasn't very long till the belief went away. It lasted six days, is all it lasted. They were at the Red Sea. 
Didn't have anywhere to go. And here come the Egyptians, the Mitzrayimites. Oh, God, what are we going to do? They're going to kill us all. Oh, my God, we'd say today, I guess, as, as Americans. That's a common expression. doesn't mean anything. It's an epithet. It's disrespectful in that sense. But God's not going to save us. Well, he did. And he saved them over and over and over again. But from that time, at the edge of the Red Sea, they quit believing. That's how long it lasted, six days. How long has God given man? Six days. Six thousand years. And here we are at the end of six thousand years, and we don't believe. As a world, as a people, we don't believe. Only a very few do. So why is Paul giving us a warning? (laughs) We need it. That's why. Be careful that you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what Christ said in Matthew 24. Sin would abound in the iniquity and the love of many would wax cold. So Paul is warning about that. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved, not he who gives up somewhere along the line. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Moses by, out of Egypt by Moses, Joshua, Caleb, because they believed. He sent them into the promised land with the other spies, and they came back and said, yeah, they're big, yeah, they got big grapes and all this stuff. We can do this. And God said, yeah. There's a couple of guys that believe me. Wow. And Joshua. Three. Joshua, Caleb. No, not just Joshua and Caleb. Just two. Because Joshua was one of them. And they got to go in. The rest died. Even Moses died for an infraction that he had made. He's going to be in the kingdom of God, but he didn't get to go into the physical promised land. And that was an example for Israel as well. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, he's preaching to the New Testament Christians here, and he's going to go in in chapter 4 that we've been entering into the rest every Sabbath as a weekly thing. But that's not the rest that we're waiting for. The weekly Sabbath rest is only a type of, a picture of the millennial rest, the 7,000 years of peace and our work, our tribulation at least, is done. And we live in peace and rest on the Sabbath. Now, we have work to do, uh, but it's a godly type of work, helping people to obey God. 
See, the priests worked hard on the weekly Sabbath. They killed animal after animal after animal on the Sabbath. It was a hard-working day. And everybody else had the day off. But God did not impute that as sin because it was work that had to do with holiness and righteousness. Now, I don't recommend people drive several hundred miles on the Sabbath. I don't recommend they preach two sermons on the Sabbath. Back in the years when I was traveling three, four hundred miles and preaching two sermons and sometimes leading the songs and giving sermonettes, when I got home at midnight on Sabbath, I was shot. I was tired. Sunday I was a zombie, more or less. It was hard work. But it was not imputed as sin because it was the work of God to do good and to help His people. So there's a difference in work. We will have rest in the millennium, but we will be working to help people become righteous, as the priests did on uh, the Sabbaths and as the ministry has done in the New Testament. Now let us see that here in chapter 4. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So he's obviously talking to them, not about the weekly Sabbath, but an additional rest that they were wanting to come into. The weekly Sabbath they came into every week. So it's not talking about that. It's something that's there as a goal and a purpose yet ahead of you. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as to them, but the word preached did not profit them, not mixed with faith in them that heard it. Now, we've heard the gospel at some point in our lives, whether it's been 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, we heard it. And you obviously had a certain amount of faith to follow along with what you heard. And that's why you're still here today. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He says, I'm going to save people. The works were finished from the time we generated the plan. We're not failures. All Israel shall be saved, Romans 11:26. His plan is going to work. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his work. So he's talking about the seven days of creation in Genesis, where God did rest. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So it was a type of a bigger, later rest. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now they'd kept the weekly Sabbath, so has the church. But they weren't entered, they didn't get to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now we are offered a different, greater spiritual promised land. And if we have unbelief and lack of faith, we won't enter in.
Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So they didn't get the rest in the promised land that they wanted. They died instead. But he spoke of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God, one that is still ahead. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to his, the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He ponders our hearts, he says. He can discern your real heart. You can't discern your own. You try, and you, to some degree, might accomplish it, but you can't really comprehend deeply your own heart. Through the Spirit of God, if He gives you insight through His Spirit, you might begin to see yourself more clearly. But apart from His Spirit, you can't do it. And others have trouble discerning your heart and spirit too. They think they got you figured out, but they're human and they're carnal and they have their own selfish motivations and they might not have you figured out near as well as they think they do. And sometimes you deceive yourself when you think yourself have yourself figured out. And then God shows you, oh, <laughs> oh, now I see, like Job, now I see. So as he ponders it and discerns it, he reveals it to us a little at a time. So that we can change our motivations, so that we can cleanse and purify that which he shows us via his Spirit, is not there yet. And so we need to, at times, ask for it. I'm afraid to do that sometimes. I approach it very carefully because I know that I am quite capable of having things that God hasn't showed me yet that I'm not going to be wanting to hear. So I say, be gentle, be kind, be loving, help me see without having to be punished, chastened, or crushed, or, or anything else. Help me see and fix. Uh, I think we approach him boldly. We come boldly to the throne of grace. You come as a forgiven, used-to-be sinner to the throne of grace and boldly ask for help, but in mercy and forgiveness and grace at all times because we always need it. Because God does cut through all the baloney and gets right down to it. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can't hide a thing from him. You might hide it from yourself, you might hide it from others, but you can't hide it from God. 
He sees it all. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Remember how Jacob held on to Christ? That's the way he wants us to hold on. Don't turn him loose. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows our frame but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When you go to him, you go to somebody who has been through everything you have been through, and more so. There is no human being who has ever lived who was tempted more than him, who was put in places of temptation more than him. Anything you've been tempted with, he was tempted with, without sin. He never gave in. But the thought was there. The impulse was there. You know, you don't sin generally without the thought coming to your mind, or an emotion coming to your mind, a recognition of something that you would like to think or do coming to your mind, The impulse has to be there. The thought has to be there. Now, do you give in to that thought? Now, people would say, well, a bad thought never entered Christ's mind. Yes, it did. Otherwise, how could he have been tempted? But he put it out as soon as it got there, before it conceived and brought forth sin. He was able to put it out. We sometimes put it out, and sometimes we bring it in and fondle it a bit. And are tempted, and sometimes we put it aside, and sometimes we give in. He never did. But he had the feeling, the desire. Without desire, there is no temptation. Right? He had to have the desire to sin. Every kind of sin. And he put it away. Now, he set the example that we should follow in his steps. But what he's trying to tell us here is that you're not coming to somebody who's going to sit back and say, Oh, yeah. No, he has empathy. He has understanding. He has feelings for you because he was in that same boat. He knows exactly what you're going through. He was there. Been there, done that. There is nothing you can take to him that he hasn't been there, done that. Nothing. So he understands. And his character is of mercy and of love and kindness and forgiveness. That's what he is. That's the kind of high priest we have. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't need to go in a fetal position, whining and sniveling to God. We have to go to Him and say, I'm a human being you created, 
And I have understood the difference between good and evil since Adam and Eve learned. And I've been under the influence of the devil ever since. And he has caused me and tempted me to sin, and I've sinned. But you, my Savior, my Father, my brother, have been through all this. Christ was tempted by Satan after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he whipped him. He beat him. And Satan is the one that's guilty of our sins. Guilty of causing us to sin. Adam and Eve did not just sin on their own. They did not know anything but good. That's all they'd known. And then here comes evil in, and suddenly they learn the difference between good and evil. They'd seen one, but they hadn't seen the other. And boy, it hit them like a ton of bricks. Uh, Suddenly they were envious and jealous and vindictive and blaming each other, and it just all went to pieces all at once. And that's the way we are. But that same devil, after 40 days of fasting, tempted Christ and he whipped him. You see what fasting does, as I said earlier? Not just one day, but 40 days to go up against Satan himself. And he was able to do it. But that fasting humbled him. It prepared him to know that as a human being, he was going to die soon if the Father didn't save him. And that he knew he was going to go up against the one being on earth, on heaven or on earth who was the most vain, the most egocentric, the most selfish of all beings in the universe. And he had a battle to the death. And that's what it would have been if Satan had won. He would have died. So he has not only fought his nature, but he has fought Satan and whipped him. You can come boldly to him. He's done it all. Be bold. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for faith. Ask for belief. Ask for love. Ask for hope. And do it in confidence that it will be given because you believe. Oh, God, give me love because I'm not going to make it. Poor me. Oh, poor me. Now, you don't go to God like that. You go to God saying, you are the eternal universal ruler, the sovereign of everything. You and Christ have seen everything that have gone on down here. And I believe you're going to give me eternal life. Because I'm going to respond to you and obey you. And I screwed up yesterday. Forgive me, please, through the blood of Christ, that I might move forward toward your kingdom. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And believe. And be healed. And be forgiven. Quit carrying that load of sin in the trailer behind you. Yeah, we all got baggage. Unhitch it. You don't need to pull it around. He said, I will forgive you. 
I will atone for you. I will forgive and purge and cleanse and purify. That's what this day is about, that we might be clean before God. After the Passover, what did he say? You are clean, except one who didn't take it um, seriously, wisely, and in faith, Judas. Unworthily, in other words, as Paul termed it. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, we have another scripture. Uh, I'm going down here and what I wrote down, I want to to go to this one in Revelation 20. But uh, trying to remember where it is. Uh, Leviticus 16, I think. The Azazel is what I'm thinking of. I think that's where it is. Yeah. Uh, here, there's been some confusion. Some have thought that that the Azazel or the scapegoat and the one and the both goats represented Christ, and that just simply cannot be. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing for sake of time. We went through it, I think, last atonement. But the scapegoat, the one upon whom the sin or the guilt for sin was laid, was sent out into the wilderness to be alone, solitary confinement. Now, Christ is never put in solitary confinement. He is always with his saints. He will always be with His saints. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says that when we are resurrected and meet Him in the air, we will ever be with Him. He's not going to be sent out into the wilderness alone. Now, He is the one that died here. The penalty of sin is death. So the goat that was sacrificed represented Christ for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness and the blood. The one that was sent into the wilderness had our sins pronounced on him, but he didn't die. He didn't bear the penalty of our sins. He bore the guilt of our sins. Who was it that tempted Adam and Eve? The guilt was on him. Who tempts and accuses us to this day? Satan the devil. The guilt is on him. The penalty is on Christ who died for our sins. So these are two separate goats. One had to be sent out into the wilderness by someone fit to do so. Now if that represents Satan, who's fit to get rid of him? Would Michael, Gabriel, be able to? No. <coughs> when one of them, Michael, I think it was, was sent with a message to Daniel, the prince of the power of Persia, Satan the devil, faced him. And he couldn't get through. They were of equal rank and equal power, Michael and Satan. 
So Gabriel had to come help Michael get past Satan to get the message to Daniel. The two of them were stronger than the one because the three had been archangels. Same power. So let's go to Revelation 20 with just that brief touching in Leviticus 16. And see this is a matter of prophecy. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. He sent it into a wilderness by, well, with his demons, but no one else. He's shut up and chained, can't go anywhere, can't do anything, can't deceive people for a thousand years. Now, Michael or Gabriel can't do this, but this was just one angel, one messenger. Could only be Christ himself, because he defeated Satan, and Satan is subject to him. That's why we can use Christ's name to cast out demons, because his name is greater than Satan's name, and Satan fears him. You try to cast out demons in your name and say, demons go away, they'll laugh at you. But you name the name of the one who defeated him, and they fear that name. Nobody else's. Peter Peter I know, Paul I know, who are you? was what the demons told somebody who tried to cast them out. Who are you? Well, Peter and Paul and John knew Christ, and they used his name. So there's only one able to do this, and that is Christ himself. He's the fit man of Leviticus 16 who comes and puts Satan out in the wilderness away from society. And Christ is never away from society, so it can't be him. And certainly the guilt of our sins is on Satan, so it fits perfectly. Now, we've addressed the idea of a day is a thousand years. Man has six thousand years. Just as God gave man six days, shall you work and do your thing. Seventh is mine. You rest on that day. He gave us 6,000 years to do our thing, Satan's thing, and we've done it. There's almost nothing that God told man to do that we have accomplished. I've only come up with one thing that we did that God said do. Just one thing. He told us to replenish the earth. (laughs) That we did. That's the only thing we've done that I can think of or have ever seen that he said do that we've done is multiply. Now, this day pictures then, through fasting, the removal of sin and the removal of Satan. Because uh, that two scape that the two goats were done on atonement. So Satan is bound on atonement. Uh, Our sins are forgiven on atonement. 
They've separated us from God. He says they'll never be mentioned to us again. So atonement means the things I said, to cancel, to cover, to cleanse, to disannul, to purge, to pardon, to get rid of. So fasting today pictures getting rid of sin, and Christ did it 40 times over because He didn't dare sin even once. So before He faced the devil, He went through 40 times what we go through on atonement to be absolutely sure. And 40 is a time of testing, 40 years in the wilderness and so on. So He went through that 40 days. Why? For you and me. You willing to go 40 days without food and water for anybody? I doubt it. We couldn't without supernatural help. Our bodies are full of toxins. We wouldn't last hardly any time. We'd be gone. Only by a divine miracle could it even happen today. But humans did it. Uh, Moses did. wasn't Elijah who did. They represent the two witnesses in the end time. I hope those poor guys don't have to do that. But I'll tell you this, they'd have to have an awful lot of supernatural health to get it done. (laughs) That's for sure. So this day pictures that. Now let's see another thing it pictures. Revelation 14. He's told us in Revelation 2 and 3 that those who grow and overcome will be in his kingdom. And he mentions the various promises and rewards throughout that. And here he said, The Lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. So he's standing on Mount Zion with 144,000. That's all, no more, no less. And he goes on down and says, that these are spiritual virgins, even as the people in Corinth were, as Paul declared. And they are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So there are 144,000 first fruits, that's all. And the first fruits are going to be in the first resurrection. That's Christ the first fruits, first one resurrected, the first of the first fruits. And they that are made one with him in the first resurrection. So that's all that's in it. The innumerable multitude is in the great white throne judgment. It isn't in the first resurrection. There are only 144 who stand with him on Mount Zion, and they were singing the new song. And only those who are in the kingdom could sing it. I think maybe that's in chapter 7 it says that. Uh, But it's talking about the 144,000, and that's all. And they follow him wherever he goes. Right there in verse 4. Which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Jude 14 says, no, no, First Thessalonians 4.17 says, when we're resurrected, we'll be with him ever. Never depart from him and him from us. Ever again. So these are the ones that go with him wherever he goes. Only these. Now, Jude, in Jude 14, does say that when he comes back, it will be be with ten thousands of his saints. Just tens of thousands. Not millions. 
not innumerable multitude, but tens of thousands. We would speak of 144,000 as tens of thousands. It's not hundreds of thousands. You've got to have at least 200,000 to be hundreds of thousands. So we're talking tens of thousands. The first uh, resurrection is limited to that. Two or three hundred, four hundred thousand is not innumerable. But billions and billions in the great white throne judgment is innumerable. You'd look at that and say, oh my, fifty, sixty billion? That'd be a lot of people. <laughs> but 144,000 isn't that many by comparison. They can be counted. So, let's go to chapter 15 here. The timing of this is, I saw the seven angels having the seven last plagues. Now, we'll probably get into it here shortly, but you have the seals that are opened, and the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And then you have the seventh trump, which is a time that the seven last plagues begin. So, all this end-time stuff happens, and the last thing is the seven last plagues, okay? So, he's talking about that time. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So here are going to be people changed. You couldn't be standing there unless you were eternal and immortal in spirit at that point. And we've already seen only 144,000 will be made that at the last trump. 144,000. So if that's all that are resurrected, that's all that are standing here. Because that's all that qualified. And they have the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They're the only ones that can sing it with 144,000, as I said earlier. So this has to be them, standing on the sea of glass, at the time that the seven last plagues are about to be unleashed. What we're building up to here is the marriage of the Lamb to the 144,000 firstfruit. They stand on the sea of glass before the Father to be married to the Son. At the time, the last plagues are about to be released, which lasts for about a year. The day of the Lord, a day is as a year. A day is also as a thousand years, depending on the circumstance. But here it's a year. You go back to Deuteronomy 24:15, I believe it is. And it says when somebody, a man married a wife, he was to take off from work for a year and cheer up his wife. Biblical principle. Christ is going to marry his bride at the time the seven last plagues are to be unleashed. And the year that they go on here on the earth is going to be his time to be with his bride and cheer her up and line her out in her responsibilities and jobs and so on that are about to come in the millennium, and they will have a year together to become at one. Marriage is at one meant, to become one. 
How do we become one with Him? Our sins, which separate us from Him, Isaiah 59, 2, are removed, purged, forgiven through atonement. His death and then His life. And because of His blood, our sins can be purged and washed away and we can be clean and be standing there all with holy garments. At that point, after the first resurrection, as I said, you're not getting kicked out of the wedding at that point. You've already been let in the door. But it's here the story of the the wedding was given so that we as humans here still would recognize that even though we've been baptized and have God's Spirit, we still could get kicked out before we get to that door of trumpets. We've got to have holy garments on to go into the wedding, through the door and into the wedding. Otherwise, they'll stop us at the door and say, hey, go get some clean clothes. Well, there isn't time. I don't have any oil in my lamp. Oops. Oops. All right. Let's go to chapter 19 then. Now, that year of rest with him might be cut short. He says, unless time was cut short, there should no flesh be saved alive. Well, the seven last plagues are the time when that could occur. It won't occur before that because the angels were only given a certain amount of power to kill. But the seven last plagues, he says, if that went on, nobody would live. So he may cut it short. So we may not have quite a year with him of rest and preparation before we return with him. Now in chapter 19, uh, after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. He's judged the whore. He's put down mankind and their smoke goes up, the 24 elders bow, and so on. And we get down to verse 7, and he says, Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. She has the holy garments. And to her was granted that she should have arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So clean clothes represents no spot of sin in them, holiness. And he said to me, Write, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says unto thee, to me, these are the true sayings of, of God. And this is a prophecy that is given. So he said, I will not drink wine with you until I do it at the marriage supper or at the marriage or in my kingdom, is what he said. But in his kingdom, you're going to have a marriage supper and a feast, and I'm sure that feast will include the wine that he said he would drink with us when we're in his kingdom. We'll have a toast, if toasts aren't pagan, uh, to him and him to his bride, but at least honor and glory and thanksgiving, whether it's a toast or not. That remains to be seen. So it is at the end of these things, that that occurs. And then, after that, you see a white horse, 
And he that sits on him is faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes is a flame of fire, that's Christ. On his head were many crowns, and a right name written that no man knew but he. And clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So when he returns the last time, well, no, it's the next to the last, actually. He's coming back and going back and forth several times here. He comes and gets us, takes us up, marries us. Then he comes back to put down all resistance that is left after the seven last plagues. And he's going to slay some people. Vesture dipped in blood. And out of his mouth goes sharp a, a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he's King of kings and Lord of lords. But the armies in heaven followed him. Remember what it said, if we're in the first resurrection, we'll ever be with him. We read another one back here, I think in 15, it says, He'll never depart. We'll always be together. So when he comes down, we're coming with him to put down the final resistance. Then, after that resistance is removed, you go to chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first and the first heaven and earth were passed away, and there was no more salt water. He purifies it, cleanses it, no more salt. Uh, you can prove that back in Ezekiel 47. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the bride and the holy city equate to being the same thing. She is prepared as a city. A city is prepared as her. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and he will be their God, and so on, and no more tears and, and, and all of that. But then let's go on down uh, for sake of time. Verse 9, There came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. So one of those that had delivered the plagues came to John in this vision and said, now I'm going to show you, now that we've done with the plagues, now I'm going to show you the bride. I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So the next thing we're going to see is the bride of Christ. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. Now, he calls the church Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Here, the church made spirit is the new Jerusalem. The holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. This is the bride. He said, I'm going to show you the bride. And he takes it and shows him this holy city. It is the bride. Isn't that what he said he was going to show him? Yeah, okay, that's what it is then. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, 
and had a wall great and high and twelve gates, that would be the twelve tribes, and twelve foundations, the twelve apostles, verse 14. So the parts of the city were equal to the tribes and the apostles. Apostles over a tribe of 12,000. He said all the apostles would be over a tribe. And this shows us there's 12,000 in each tribe. That's 144,000. That's how many the bride is. The numbers all come together to equate to the 144,000 of the bride. And he gave me a golden reed to measure it, and it was uh, 12,000, four square, 12,000 furlongs. 12,000 times 12,000. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man. 144. That's the bride, 144,000. And it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And then beautiful stones uh, were in it. The bride is going to be given all these jewels. He's going to adorn his bride with jewelry. So the city and the bride equate to each other. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So at the end of the seven last plagues, you see the bride of Christ come down with the Father and the Son. Not after The Father doesn't wait till the great white throne judgment's over to come. He comes with the Lamb and the bride, and he is part of the temple. The two of them are. The city had no need of the sun, neither the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God lighted it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And there were still human beings around. Satan is bound, but there's still human beings. The nations which are saved walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth bring their glory to it. The gates aren't shut all day, and there's no night, and they'll bring the honor of the nations to it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only the 144,000 are there, and nothing abominable can come in. Now the Protestants have their song from Zechariah of the New Jerusalem, and no one is denied. All who come may enter, and no one is denied. Doesn't say that here. Says if you're evil or foul or sinful, you don't get in. Period. So there's still humans here during the millennium, and they bring their honor, and if they don't bring it, they don't get rain through the millennium. And same through the great white throne judgment. Because the Father and the Son and the and the bride make up the city. The Father and the Son are the temple. And we are the rest of the city, the 144,000. So the Day of Atonement has an awful lot of meaning. No more sin, no more pain, no more death. That is all severed and gone. It went away with Satan. And we are changed into spirit. And we'll be that way forevermore. 
So this day pictures getting rid of the sinner Satan, getting rid of our sin, and not doing any work or sin or anything bad at all on this day. And then we can be given permission, grace, forgiveness to enter in as the bride of Christ, marry him on the day of atonement, and then have our year with him in peace and safety while the seven plagues are going on down here. And then we'll return with him to put down all resistance and then come down with the Father as the new Jerusalem. That's there for us. Come boldly before the throne of grace.